This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Well, Steve, welcome to the Human Action Podcast. Thanks for having me back, Bob. This is always my favorite podcast of the week. Um, so I would like to talk first about you recently gave your uh, one of your exams to chat GPT. So can you just tell us what gave you that idea and then what happened? Well, I teach, uh, I teach uh, sophomores uh, economics at the University of Rochester. And um, I was curious, you know, there's all this hype about chat GPT. I was curious how it would do on my exams. Turned out it did uh, very, very poorly. It did very poorly in an interesting way. Uh, it, it essentially, uh, it scored actually four points out of 90. There was no question that it, that it did very well on. Uh, there were a couple questions where I felt like it had earned a point or two. Uh, but it answered questions in, in a, a, a way that was very striking to me. It repeated a lot of material that was relevant to the question, and it got it right. If I asked a question about social cost, it explained to me what social cost was, and it got it right. But then when it came to applying what it knew to actually solving a problem, it, 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 it obviously had no concept of what the ideas actually meant. It reminded me, to be honest, of many of my weakest students who compensate for their failure to understand by memorizing a whole lot of stuff and repeating it all back and hoping they'll get credit for that. It wasn't actually able to think about the economics, though. And the moral of that to me is that we really, we still need economists. Maybe five years from now, maybe 10 years from now, we won't. Maybe artificial intelligence will be a whole lot better now than it, than, than it is now. But for the time being, we need economists. And we need economists who can do more than just repeat what they heard in their classes, but can actually think about how to apply those ideas. We need economists who can do not what my weakest students do, but what my strongest students do. Well, yeah, your your take was roughly mine in terms of like what the chat B, GPT sounds like. It's and yeah, I, I agree with you. It was like a student who did all the reading, who you know studied, went to class, and everything, but you could tell just. It's not really clicking. Like they, they don't really understand. And the way you know that is if you ask a novel question, you know, something we didn't explicitly cover in class, Absolutely. then that's where it really shines through that, oh, yeah, they're talking around the issue, but I don't think that they really got it, which isn't surprising in the grand scheme that since, you know, if we know how these large language models work, that they just get, you know, trained on a bunch of data and are just using statistical frequencies to sort of predict what the best and, next and word it, is. In, in fairness to the developers of ChatGPT, I don't think they ever claimed that it would be intelligent in this way, at least at this stage. Uh, uh, but uh, many people seem to expect that of it. And um, uh, I think those people are, are clearly very wrong. One thing I thought was very positive about this is I'm no longer worried about my students cheating by using ChatGPT. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah, and and to be clear, yes, I'm not criticizing it. I'm that I'm astounded by how good it performs on certain tasks, mm -hmm. things, and even some things that seem seem to require creativity. Like yes, there's certain my computer applications. programmer yeah. friends tell me that it's an amazing programmer. Um, mm -hmm. I understand it does very well on medical diagnoses. So can you just partly because it's interesting to see, to learn some of the details, but also just because I want 
the you know so the the people tuning into this podcast are primarily fans of the Austrian school, and your type of economics is uh, uh, friendly to and you know sympathetic with, and you know they should enjoy what you're doing. But strictly speaking, you tackle things that a little bit differently from how the typical Austrian does. So that's partly why. Can you just uh, go through some of the examples of some of the exam questions and just to show like what you were looking for and then what the you know how ChatGPT got it wrong? Sure. So so here's here's a problem. Uh, I don't have the exact wording in front of me, but this is very close. It said, imagine a a, a, a town where uh, to keep things simple, assume everybody is identical, um, and uh, because of a price control, people have to wait in line to buy potatoes. And every day, a hundred people line up to buy their potatoes uh, because that's the amount of potatoes that suppliers are willing to provide at the uh, controlled price. And they don't really like standing in line. So the government decides to make things a little better by handing out free coffee to the people standing in line. A hundred people, the government hands out a hundred cups of coffee and announces that they'll do this every day. It costs them a dollar a cup to make that coffee, but people only value it at 75 cents a cup. And the question was, what is the social cost of providing that free coffee? Now, to answer that question, you need to know what the phrase social cost means. And social cost in this context means the cost of producing the coffee minus uh, the amount of value that people get from that coffee. Uh, and uh, ChatGPT started off by explaining to me what social cost is correctly. It then said 100 cups of coffee at a dollar a cup costs $100 to make the coffee, 100 people drinking it, valuing it at 75 cents a cup, that's $75 worth of value, 100 minus 75, that's a $25 social cost, which is exactly what my weakest students uh, want to tell me. What it overlooks is what my stronger students have learned to salivate like Pavlov's dog. People respond to incentives, and if you change incentives, behavior is going to change. If you give people free coffee when they wait in line, then more people are going to want to wait in line. And if there are only a 100 places, of, and one, one of several things is going to happen, we don't know the details of this. Maybe the line gets longer, or if there are only a 100 places uh, available in line, then people are going to find ways to compete for those 100 places, maybe by getting up early in the morning. Maybe by getting into fistfights. I don't know. But if there are only 100 places available and 150 people want them, there's going to be some kind of competition to settle who gets those places. And that competition is going to produce no social good. It's just reallocating goods across the uh, from the people who are less successful in the competition to the people who are more successful. But it's not creating any more coffee. It's not creating any more potatoes. That's social loss. And that is another big part of the social cost of providing the coffee. In fact, under my simplifying assumption that everybody's identical, they're going to keep competing until the value of the coffee is entirely whittled away and it costs the government a dollar a cup to provide this coffee and nobody gets any value from it at all because they'll get a 75 cent cup of coffee and they'll do 75 cents of, uh, of, of unpleasant competition in order to get that cup of coffee. If there were differences among people so that some people valued the coffee more than others or some people minded the competition less than others, then you would have a more complicated story. The, the, the basic issue, though, is going to remain, which is that when you change the incentive to stand in line, more people are going to attempt to stand in line. And that is the source of a, a tremendous amount of social cost. 
This is something I want our policymakers to understand. If they're going to build a free playground and they're thinking about what that playground's going to be worth, they better stop and think about the fact that the better they make the playground, the more crowded it's going to be. The better they make the playground, the more kids are going to be fighting with each other to get on the slide, or the more kids are going to have to get up earlier in the day to get on the slide, or um, the more kids are going to have to be bumping elbows with each other all the time. So you can't just say, if we make this playground $1,000 better, that's $1,000 worth of social good. It may only be worth $300 worth of social good. It may be worth zero, depending on how you uh, uh, incentivize that additional competition. Okay, yeah, great. So let me just bear with me, Steve, because I I know, again, this for people coming from the Austrian tradition, what you just went through, it's intriguing, but that's I've never seen any Austrian think through things like that. So let me try to paraphrase, and this might seem elementary to you, but again, I'm doing it for the benefit of people. Because I know when I first read there was a you had a chapter in your armchair economist book that was a similar you know logic and it, it took me a minute to even unpack what you were saying. So is the idea something like forget the coffee? You know, originally when there's the, the potatoes and everybody in the community is identical, and so that let's say that everyone knows they're going to open the window at ten o'clock in the morning, and so and and people and suppose it's such that once the line is long enough that everyone has to wait an hour, you're just indifferent between either getting in line and waiting for the hour to then be able to pay at the control price and get the potatoes versus just not getting potatoes that day. And so that means clearly, you know, once the thing's open, you're looking at the line, it's going to be an hour long. Let's say that's 100 people long. Um, and then so what happens originally is at 9 a.m., the first person goes and gets in line because he knows since I'm first in line, he'll have to wait an hour because he has to wait till 10. He's the first person in line. And then each a new person gets in line what you know if they knew how long it would be to service the people ahead of them such that everybody ends up waiting exactly one hour to get to the front of the line and get the the potatoes and now if they're giving the coffee out so now the whole package of waiting in the lines more pleasant it just means that the first person now gets in gets there at like 8:30 instead of 9 and so now everyone's waiting an hour and a half and so it's got to be since everyone's identical that on the margin now getting a free cup of coffee and waiting an hour and a half makes you just indifferent between getting the option of buying those potatoes at the control price versus not getting potatoes that day. Is it something last like that? Person, the last person – everything you said is exactly correct. I'll just repeat it in slightly different words, but it's basically exactly what you just said. Uh, the person who is just on the margin of entering the line or not entering the line, he's getting nothing out of the coffee. He has gotten free coffee and he has gotten additional competition that washes out the value of that. The marginal – person joining the line has to feel that way because um, if he didn't feel that way, he wouldn't be the marginal person. Somebody else would come along who's willing to enter the line. Uh, the marginal person feels that way. If you assume everyone's identical, then everyone is identical to the marginal person. And so they all have to get no value from the coffee. Right. Okay. And in, again, for the listeners who aren't used to thinking like this, I'm going to encourage you, don't get all hung up. But in the real world, people are different. Sure. Right. And so People who don't, you know, have a lot of spare time, or they like stretching their thighs by waiting in line, or they like talking to people and making new friends and stuff. They're the ones there. But still, Steve's logic goes through by handing out the coffee. That's not a pure boon, even setting aside yeah. the cost of producing it, because the line grows and that largely offsets it. Right. Without the simplifying assumption, some people will benefit, but they will not benefit as much as you expect them to if you uh, if you think like ChatGPT. Um, I also want to say, and I, I don't mean this to be uh, um, uh, 
Uh-oh. What are you going to say? <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm looking for the right adjective. I'll just say it. I am astonished that um, this is not standard fare in every uh, mm-hmm. brand of economics. I am – and I want to I, I want to say – that there are things that Austrians know cold and 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 have built into their intuitions that are valuable that I'm sure I don't have. Uh, so you know we all we all right. know what we know, but it is a revelation to me to hear mm-hmm. you say that there are uh, that there is a, a a branch of economics in which this kind of thinking is not routinely taught as the as the core of the course. I mean, this kind of thing is the absolute core of the courses I teach. Again, my students, I'm sure, are missing out on some stuff that you could have taught them. But I, it is a surprise to me that we don't all teach this. Sure. And for all I know, you know, I'm going to get a bunch of angry, angry responses. What are you talking about, Bob? I teach this stuff. But I, I think what it is, just to, for people to get the sort of the, the history, like I think what you're doing, we might call like growing out of the Chicago school, UCLA price yeah, theory I think tradition. People would call this Chicago price theory. Yeah. And, and uh, it is, would you agree it's – very similar to what people might have referred to as like the UCLA tradition. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. And 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 I am probably just betraying how parochial I am when I say that I thought everybody thought this way. Uh, oh, should, well, yeah, don't you're not going to find me this I've told this story before but just it's it's one of my favorite grad school. So I was going I was at NYU. You know, it was like at the top 15 school at the time. And my joke is it was a top 20 when I joined, and after I left, then it became top 10, but which is a, a true <laughs> statement. Hopefully there's no causality there. Um, and uh, and, they, and they were the UAW was coming in and trying to unionize the grad students, and so the provost of the school is going around trying to get the grad students to not vote for it, right, because you know, NYU doesn't want the UAW getting involved. And the provost is talking to the economic, you know, getting PhDs in economics from NYU, and asking what what do you guys want? And one kid said, or a guy, I say kid, he was he was this guy from Turkey who was really sh- excellent at math, one of our better students because he could really compute those equilibrium conditions mathematically. And he said, well, we want to have uh, subs- subsidies for housing because the Columbia students get that, so we should. And the and the pro said, okay, well, right now on the stipend, we're giving you a pile of money. If you want, we can give you subsidized housing, but then of course the amount of the check we give you has to be lower. If you want, we can do that. And the, and the guy said, no, because NYU owns the apartments, it's free to you to give us subsidized housing. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> so when you say that, you know, so anyway, that's what it um, – Okay. So and, – and the fact that that struck you the way it struck you means that you 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 do think like in many ways like a Chicago yeah. – Oh, uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. reading Thomas Sowell and you know Henry yeah. Hazlitt and stuff like that. Yes, of course. Um, okay. So let – but it, but just so people don't think that you just re- merely raise some quirk about handing out free coffee, I do want to make sure they don't miss the broader point that, um, and the way you put it in your armchair economist was you, I think you called it prices versus taxes. But the, um, but the idea being just in general, if the government is, is like is going to be giving out cups of coffee by charging a price, then at least you know that then they could use that as a rationing mechanism, and then like they could give tax cuts or something, lump sum rebates. That would be much better than just relying on queuing as a means of allocating the scarce resources. So that's you know kind of the the bigger picture. You were saying there's different social mechanisms we could use to distribute goods to people, and some make more sense than others. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Instead of having people queue up, you just said it. Instead of having people queue up, let them let them 
and, and wait in line all day, make them pay for a place in line. Fewer people will wait in line. You'll collect that money. It's no harder on those people. They hated waiting in line. They hate paying the money. Uh, they, they hate both things equally, but you end up with a pile of money that you can use to do some good with. Yeah. Um, another real world illustration because people might think that's kind of contrived about, you know, giving coffee out to people waiting in line is that riding the New York City subways. And I haven't done it in years, so I don't know if they've changed it. But when I was in grad school, there were just certain periods of the day where if you wanted to ride the subway, you had to be just squished like every cubic centimeter of volume in the subway was occupied by human flesh. Like people would just keep going in until you really couldn't cram anyone else and then the doors would close. And so for people who were a bit claustrophobic, like they just could not use the subway for, you know, between 4 and 6 p.m. On, on certain lines. Like they just knew, no, you can't use it. And whereas like, you know, if you went to go see a movie on opening night, it's not that the theater would let every human being climb in there and sit on each other's lap. No, they would charge a price. And then once the seats were sold, that was it. So that you could still enjoy the movie and again, the price was the, you know, the, the rationing mechanism. It, it wasn't just, you know, technically they charge a price on the subway, but the point is it was way too low at rush hour. They could have raised prices to ration so that people wouldn't be human sardines. And then, you know, if it were a free market, they probably with the extra profit would have opened more lines or something for rush hour. But that's and, just an idea. Ab above all, I want my students to understand the, the, the role of prices in society. You know, we, we just, um, uh, I don't think we've talked about this before. Stop me if we have, but I, we, we just had a, uh, here in Rochester, we had a pandemic the last few years. I don't know if you had it where you are, but, uh, we, uh, at some point vaccines became available. And how did they allocate those vaccines? They said, well, you got to get in front of your computer and you got to keep clicking and clicking and clicking and clicking until you find, uh, an appointment available. And so the entire country was hovering in front of their computer screens, click, 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 wasting day after day after day. I know I was and everybody I know was until finally you got that um, amazing moment when it came up and there was an appointment available and you grabbed it. And then you got that appointment. That was crazy already. But this is crazier. Once you got the appointment, you were not allowed to sell it to somebody who valued it more than you did. If you were happy at home reading a book, you couldn't sell your spot to somebody who was desperate to get out and dance. If you were an accountant who could work from home, you couldn't sell your spot to a construction worker who needed to be on site. It was absolutely crazy. Now, at the height of all this, we had a talk here at the University of Rochester from a very prominent, very good economist who was advising the authorities on how to allocate vaccines. And he had an algorithm. Oh, my God, this algorithm used every kind of math I ever heard of. It was it was complicated and it filled blackboards and blackboards with this uh, algorithm. It involved every everything you could possibly imagine in an algorithm except for prices. There were no prices in this algorithm. So I raised my hand and I said, where are the prices? And he said, there are no prices in my algorithm. And I said, why? And he said, because I know from long experience that the minute you say the word price, everybody who's not an economist stops listening. So there he was. He knew, he knew what you know and what I know and what every good economist knows, Austrian, Chicago, Marxist, I don't care who. It is crazy. 
to try to allocate a scarce, valuable resource without using prices. It is insanity. And he knew this, but he, and it's a truth. It's true. It's profound. It has enormous consequences for human happiness, but he didn't dare say it out of fear that nobody would listen. And so, uh, you know, my God, our, our mission, I think, has got to be to make more people understand this. I've sent a lot of students out in the world who don't, but I've sent a lot who do. <laughs> Some of those have become very good economists. Some have become very influential policymakers. But in many ways, the ones I'm proudest of are the ones, the hundreds who have gone out there and are smarter voters and smarter citizens and better able to serve themselves and their families and the world. It's uh, uh, And that understanding of prices is the key to all of it. Yeah. I mean, another illustration of that, again, real world is like rush hour traffic. Like, you know, again, I'm thinking of the New York example, just people who spent four hours a day if they lived like far out on Long Island driving into Manhattan to work, you know, some, you know, they're high corporate lawyers or something. And then another two hours getting home. And then they even would come up with innovations like high occupancy vehicle lanes. Like if to drive in this lane, you got to have multiple people in and they would encourage carpooling. And so, yeah, I'd go through with my students and say, well, a high price would also encourage carpooling and also would get the point of, you know, the guy who's rushing his wife to the hospital and doesn't have four people or whatever, you know, whatever the rules are, or just somebody who, for whatever reason, really needs to get there fast that day and is willing to pay $20 extra. But now that's literally impossible or they can break the law and risk getting pulled over if they drive in the HOV lane. And on top of all that, you're collecting all this money you can do something good with. I mean, it's it's right. um, uh, it's 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 really is. uh Win-win. Uh, right. And it obviously underscores the the logic of privatization ultimately that if there were private owners of the bridges and roads, then they couldn't just charge unconscionably high prices and just pocket it that there would be competition and, and so forth. So right. it's, and, and in some cases, things are hard to privatize because it's hard to control access to them or something like that. And I think we should acknowledge that. But we also uh, should should weigh those those difficulties against the huge advantages of, of using prices. Great. Um, okay. So let's see. Did you, was there another one you want? I mean, because I know we talked about oh, a bunch I, of different I topics. Mean, I could fill the hour with them. I, here's a quick one. I, I had one. It was uh, uh, maybe too similar to the first one, but uh, uh, you're going to build, uh, you're going to expand an airport and uh, the the noise from the airport is going to cause $60,000 worth of distress to the neighbors of the airport. $60,000 worth of distress. What I mean by that is it's going to cause them as much pain as losing $60,000 would cause them um, collectively. Uh, true or false, the cost of uh, that airport expansion, the social cost, is $60,000. Again, it told me all about social cost. Then it said, yes, you're going to cause $60,000 worth of pain to people. That's a $60,000 cost. It completely overlooked the main point, which is you might be causing them $60,000 worth of cost, or they might say to hell with this and move away. Uh, and in, and maybe moving away only causes them $30,000 worth of cost. You do not know how people are going to respond. You're going to create an incentive to move. People might or might not choose to respond to that incentive, but you got to account for that possibility when you're thinking about what are the actual costs of this airport expansion. Uh, I think you were the one who told me that uh, I, I should, when I explained this, 
I should suggest that maybe the people will move away and somebody who operates a go-kart track will come in and, uh, and, yeah. and who, who doesn't mind the, the airplane noise. Uh, and that will be a more efficient allocation of that land. Um, so, um, so, so that there's another example. And, you know, policymakers who don't think that way are going to perhaps instinctively say, uh, $60,000, that's a lot of money. We don't want that expansion. And they're going to make terrible mistakes because sometimes the expansion is not always a good thing, but sometimes it is. And you need to account for the possibility that it is and investigate whether in this particular case it might be. Right. And that also ties into the standard discussion of so-called Pagovian taxes, right? And I think mm-hmm. I think even Ronald Coase himself mentioned that in his, in his original paper on this stuff that you can imagine scenarios where, yeah, there's some – Companies dumping stuff in the river or whatever, and if you and there's all these houses downstream, and each house is going to get whatever hundred dollars worth of damage every month, and so we need to have a tax on the factory proportional to that, blah blah blah. So when it might just be cheaper if the factory bought all the houses out or something, and and again, you know, just to get just logically come up with things. So the the problem was with the standard Pogovian framework; it just assumed these are the only two possibilities, and then exactly. it was going to levy this tax, and it might be that the factory that proposed taxes, okay, we're not going to do it, when maybe actually there was a way to thread the needle and it would be more efficient if they bought out all the people and moved them, you know, voluntarily and then, you know, put the stuff in the river where no humans were harmed because it dissipates by the time it reaches humans and it gets to produce the TVs or whatever it was. Whereas with the tax approach, maybe they just don't do it at all and they make something else and now we miss out on the TVs and those people still stay there, but that's not, quote, the optimal thing to do. I always ask my students, you know, we, we, we talk in class uh, about um, uh, oil tankers springing leaks in the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, uh, it destroys the the uh, ability of the fishermen and the shrimpers and so on to make a living, and it uh, takes away beautiful places for people to live. I always ask my students, how do you know that, that the most efficient use of the Gulf of Mexico is not as a dumping place for leaked oil. <laughs> um, it, that might be the best outcome. These fishermen and shrimpers, they don't disappear from the earth. They go and they find other jobs, and that's hard on them. That's really hard on them. But on the other hand, having less oil is really hard on other people. Uh, and we do not know. I'm not saying that we know the answer here. I'm saying we don't know the answer, at least not by pure theory we don't know the answer. It might be that the best thing, the best outcome for society as a whole is to just devote the Gulf of Mexico to being a, a dumping ground for oil and let those shrimpers and fishermen go 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 somewhere else. Um, maybe that's the best solution. Maybe it's not. Economic theory is not going to tell you the answer to that question, but economic theory is going to tell you what questions you have to ask and what you have to investigate in order to get the answers. So is the uh, – I'm glad you put it that way because as, as the viewers now know, in case they didn't know you before, you sort of subscribe to the Walter Block theory of public outreach where – it's like you say something that's almost deliberately shocking to, to wake people up. It's like, no, there's a way of thinking of it, like instead of trying to like sugarcoat it and beat around the bush and, well, you know, there's lots of competing things and we love the pristine beauty of nature and, and I understand where you're coming. You know, you say, because it should be a dumping ground. Maybe that's the efficient, right? So can you just speak a little bit about like, did you ever, like when you were younger, did you try to more pussyfoot around things and then you got a little bit just more direct as you got older or were you always like that did you get what i'm asking first of all yeah okay yeah, you know i i i am i have a phd in math and mm-hmm. uh and i I've, I've had uh uh my my career has uh uh veered back and forth between economics and math and and in math that's that's how you uh communicate you 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 uh 
if somebody's got something not exactly right, you hit him over the head with the most striking possible counterexample to yeah. to to make him say, "Oh, okay, yeah." <laughs> you uh, uh, you don't say, "Well, it might be a little bit wrong in this case." In this case, you try to find the most shocking way to get them to move off that false way of thinking. So maybe it's that training. Maybe it's just my genes. I don't know. Uh, but I'm I'm always inclined to say, "Yeah, if you want to learn things, the way you learn things is getting by getting shocked out of." things that you thought you knew but were wrong. And so, yeah, yeah, I think shocking people is a really good way to teach them. Great, great. Um, okay. Can we... I love it when people shock me. I yeah, mean, yeah. No, there is no better day than a day when I find out I've been wrong my whole life about something I thought was true. Right, yeah. One of my... I can vividly remember a few of the things that I really know well now. It's because I spent a while certain it was wrong and I tried to prove to myself why and then I ended up realizing, oh, wait a minute, no, that's actually right. And like you really understand something if you start out thinking it's totally wrong. Um, okay, can we switch over to you, – because you've also been doing a lot, maybe not recently, but I know like you um, gave a talk on population growth and you know people have worried about overpopulation, things like that. So maybe can you show you as an economist how do you think about issues like that? Yeah, uh, I'll say a couple things about that. First of all, you know, uh, whenever I raise the question – Whenever I hear anybody raise the question, is the world overpopulated? There's always somebody who jumps up and says, well, of course, because there's a limit to the number of people the earth can support. And that's the person who has given no thought to this question whatsoever, because of course there's a limit to the number of people the earth can support. What that tells me is there's such a thing as too many people. I'm also sure there's such a thing as too few people. I would not like to be the only person in the world and have to create all my own food and clothing and everything else. There is such a thing as too many people. There's such a thing as too few people. Those observations don't tell me anything about whether the number we currently have is too high or too low. And now, how are you going to think about that? Well, there's a very general and very powerful principle of economics here, which is that the only way to know whether the world has too much or too little of something is to ask what incentives were facing the people who made the choices about that quantity. How do we know whether the world has too much or too little pollution? We say, well, what incentives were the polluters facing? Were they being taxed for that pollution? Were they just putting it out into the atmosphere and not being punished for it? Were they bearing some of the costs? Were their neighbors bearing all the costs? If you want to know whether the world has too much or too little of something, you have to ask what incentives were the decision makers facing. Now, when you're talking about population, the relevant decision makers are the families deciding whether to have children or how many children to have. Um, so what we have to do is uh, ask what are the benefits to society of having a child? What are the costs? And most importantly, how many of those benefits and costs did the parent were, were felt by the parents because those are the benefits and costs that we know already got accounted for. If the parents felt all the benefits and costs of having a child, there'd be no social issue here whatsoever. If they felt all the benefits and costs, then, then there'd be no reason for us to try to second guess them. We need to worry about the benefits and costs that spill over onto other people, the ones that economists call externalities. And, um, I, it seems, Look, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, costs 
of bringing a child into the world. That child has to be fed for the first 18 years or so. Well, that's something that is felt by the parents. That child is um, uh, uh, has to be educated. You got Somebody's got to sit up with him at nights when he's sick. That's all felt by the parents. So those are not social issues. The only social issues are the costs and benefits that spill over. The big social cost that people think of is they say, well, what about all the resources this kid is going to consume over the course of his life? And that's where I think a lot of people get this wrong. Look, my resource consumption is not always a cost to the rest of the world. A lot of the resources I get, I create myself. I plant a, an herb garden and I, 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 I harvest those, those herbs. I build myself a house. A lot of stuff I do, I either do it myself or more usually I trade for it. I give economics lessons that people value. In exchange for that, I get some money. I trade that money. I give it to somebody to build me a house. Everybody's a winner in all of that. My house uses up resources, but they're resources that somebody voluntarily gave me because I bought from them. So those things are not social costs. Another big place where a lot of people, a remarkable number of people, get a substantial amount of resources is through inheritance. And there you might say, well, if, if, uh, if Joe Schmo inherited a lot of money from his parents, that's, uh, th those are resources that could have gone to someone else. Uh, that's, that's where he's, um, uh, putting a burden on the rest of society as a whole. I'm not sure that's true. I don't think he took those resources from the rest of society. He took them from his family. They came to him from his parents who otherwise would have given them to his brother. And if they loved his brother, then they felt that cost. They said, here's, here's Joe's older brother, John. Uh, we love John. They're thinking about having another kid. And they said, well, if we give this other, have another kid, we're going to have to cut John's inheritance in half. And that's, that's really going to, uh, hurt him. And we really love him and we hate to hurt him, but we want this other kid so much. We're willing to do that. That's, that's the calculation they implicitly went through. That is a cost that was felt by the parents. It's a cost that was felt by the parents. Therefore, they weighed that cost against all the other, all the benefits, all the love, everything else. Uh, and so I think very often people overestimate the fraction of the cost of bringing a person into the world that is felt by society as a whole, as opposed to the family. As long as the costs are confined to the family, we don't have to worry about them. Now, some costs spill over, right? If, uh, if I, uh, uh, join with a bunch of my friends and form an army and come take your house from you, you're going to wish we had never been born. Uh, that's a cost of bringing us into the world that, uh, that my parents did not feel they didn't account for. You're having to pay the cost of it. That's a true social cost. We should account for it. If I become a major polluter, a major thief, maybe a major ward of the government, then I'm imposing costs on people that my parents probably didn't account for. So there certainly are such costs, but most of my resource consumption does not go into that category. On the other hand, if we look at benefits, I like to think I'm bringing a lot of benefits to the world that my parents didn't account for. You wanted me on your show. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I, I hope somebody's uh, enjoying watching it. As you go through life, 
people value as a friend. They value you as a lover. They value you as a customer. They value you as an employer. They value you as an employee. They value you as a provider, a supplier of the goods that you buy. They value you as somebody who has ideas that they can copy. And that's huge. There's a, a, a big literature in economics suggesting that most of our prosperity comes from the fact that we're all copying each other's ideas all the time. Ideas are, are a, a unique kind of resource because they don't get used up when you use them. You can reuse them and reuse them and reuse them. And in fact, they become better with use because every time people use them, they figure out how to do them a little better. So ideas are a very unique uh, uh, um, factor of production uh, with lots of unique qual qualities that suggest that uh, again, and this comes out of a lot of economic models, that uh, that's, that's really the main source of most prosperity. Every child who is born has ideas. I, great ideas, like I wonder if we can build computer chips out of silicon. Everyday ideas, like, hey, let's put on a play. Um, the, uh, and the ideas are valuable in their own right, and then they're valuable again because people can copy those ideas. So there's a huge number of benefits you bring to the world that your parents didn't account for. My guess is that when you weigh all that stuff up, the social benefits of bringing an extra child into the world are considerably greater. The external benefits of bringing a child into the world are, in most cases, much greater than the external costs. And if that's true, then we don't have enough people. I can't prove that's true. My guess is that it's true. I've got a lot of reasons for that guess. Uh, I'm not sure it's true, but the one thing I am sure of is that this is the only useful way to think about the question. Any question, is there too much of this? Is there too little of this? The only possible way you can address that question intelligently or usefully is to say the people who were creating this thing, were they over-incentivized or were they under-incentivized? Were, were there costs they weren't feeling? Were there benefits they weren't feeling? And of those costs and benefits that they weren't feeling, which is greater? That's the kind of accounting you have to do. Okay, yeah. So a lot there. Let me uh... – sort of play devil's advocate because, again, I'm, I want people to understand the way you're thinking of this. So let me try to handle some of the objections that so-called regular people who aren't used to thinking like this would come up with. So I imagine one immediate objection someone's going to say is something like, you know, geez, Steve, you're you economist. You think everybody sits down and writes out, uh, you know, a calculus problem before they decide whether to have sex. Now, people are going to, you know, concerts and getting drunk and coming home and that's where the new babies come from or they have religious views, or they don't know about contraception, or they you know, live in a society where the women really don't have a choice about whether to you know, restrict childbirth or not. So you know, isn't this, you're kind of assuming there's this, everyone has full agencies and fully informed, but in the real world, it's, not, it's a lot more complicated, and there's all sorts of reasons that people have more children than they actually would want to in some abstract model. Um, sure, but it remains the case. People do a lot of things for a lot of weird reasons, but it remains the case that on top of all that, they respond to incentives. They respond to incentives, and in particular, in the case of um, um, uh, uh, childbirth, uh, we have some uh, uh, excellent uh, empirical evidence on that, thanks to the Austrian government, which did a uh, an experiment uh, not very long ago uh where um uh i'm so, i'm i'm actually uh i'm i'm trying to pull the exact numbers up on my screen and i don't have them but it doesn't matter 
uh, they did an experiment where parents who had another child while the first child was under two years old received a one-time payment that was equivalent, and I do have the numbers on my screen now, equivalent to the modern equivalent of about 10,000 American dollars. This was in the 1990s. Whatever the payment was then, it's equivalent to $10,000 today. If you had a child under two and you had another child, you would receive $10,000 once, not $10,000 annually, $10,000 once. 15% of the eligible couples had an additional child who otherwise would not have had one based on what we know about past behavior of couples. 15% of couples were incentivized by a single $10,000 payment to have another child. And now you might ask, were they really deciding to have another child or were they just deciding to have that second child a year earlier than they otherwise would have? We know that too, because this was a long time ago and we look at what happened to family sizes over the subsequent years and know they were actually having one more child than they otherwise would have had based on all past experience with family sizes. So for a single $10,000 payment, you were incentivizing 15% of young couples to have one more child than they otherwise would have. That is a huge effect. And it shows you that people, are there a whole lot of other reasons people are having children? Absolutely. They're having some of them by mistake. They're having some of them because they just didn't stop and think. Absolutely. But those incentives at the margin are having huge effects on the number of children that are born. Right. And that would tie into like with a lot of standard economist arguments about like the welfare state and stuff like that. Like, gee, if you don't want to have more kids born out of wedlock, maybe you should stop paying women to have babies and not be married and stuff like that. And it's. You know, it's like, well, gee, that's not the way the legislation was written, but it's like, but right. But if the incentives are there and even in things like that, it's not so much that some 19 year old girl is sitting at home and running calculus problems and realizes, ah, my optimal course is rather having that those incentives in place facilitates behavior that otherwise there might have been a stronger check on. Like, you know, either way you get the same answer, but or the same tendency. Um, so. To make sure that people that people aren't missing the, your main point, the idea is what you're saying. If we if we did, so you admit theoretically, yeah, presume if we had sixty six, you know, sixty quadrillion people on planet Earth right now, arguably that would be too many. Right, and, you um, know, productivity I, would be I, low. Yeah, and the, it, and the reason it would be too many is is that external costs would increase. We would be competing for resources. We would fight more. We would, uh, uh, if, if there were 60 quadrillion people, all of whom kept to themselves and, and, and just tr- got everything they needed by trading with other people. Okay. And, 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 and we're not overusing free resources and, and, and doing everything through markets. There'd be no problem. I'm not sure they could all survive, but if they could survive and if, if, if they wanted to keep having children, there'd be no problem. The problem is that they would start fighting. They would start stealing. They would start, uh, making war on each other. And, and then the cost of having another child would be that you would contribute to this. That's a big external cost. I don't think we're there. I don't think we're anything close to there. I think we are, though, still at a point where the external benefits from additional children are enormous. And so, uh, that's why I suspect that the external benefits from an extra child outweigh the external benefit, the external costs. Maybe not in all places, maybe not at all times, mm-hmm. but I think in most of the places that we're talking about. 
Right. And so if we were clearly past the optimal population level, you're saying family, you know, mothers and or potential mothers and fathers would would know that they would realize the either legally or the social expectation is that if we have a kid, we got to take care of him or her until at least age 18. And with the way prices are right now, food is so expensive. We couldn't possibly afford a kid. So we won't. As long as they're bearing all the costs, yeah. as long as they're not stealing from other people, then some families are going to say, we would rather have one kid and be rich. And some other family is going to say, we're going to have 20 kids and be poor. And that is an opportunity to celebrate diversity. That's not a social mm-hmm. problem. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, good, good stuff there. Um, also too, I just, I don't, I don't know if I invented this or I read somewhere, but I like to, your point about, you know, ideas being ubiquitous. And once you come up with an idea that somebody, I, I don't know if you, if you said it, like there was a, there was a comedy that mentioned it where the idea was somebody had a bunch of kids because he was hoping one of them would cure overpopulation or right. something like that. Right. <laughs> and and um, like on one hand, that's funny, but on the other hand, that's true. Like if there really is some you know, some genius comes up with a way that, oh, wait a minute, we could quintuple agricultural output. It just takes yeah. one person to, to realize that. And then it all of a sudden, all of humanity. Person and, and, but I also want to emphasize, you know, that makes it sound like we're having a lot of people in, in hopes that we'll get an extra genius here or there. It's not just the geniuses. If you, it's, it's, it's the person who helped you change a tire on a cold uh, winter night. It's the person who smiled at you as you passed them on the street and made you feel a little better. Uh, we are all doing a lot of good for each other just as we go through our daily lives. Mm-hmm. And also to just the idea of looking at people as brains and not just bellies. Yeah. That, yeah. That it's, you know, it, there's a certain, it's kind of creepy, like the disdain that some of the people who worry about population seem to like they view humans as like parasites or something on, on poor Mother Earth when, you yeah. Know, and I, you know, I know people who, who, uh, take the view that they care as much about animals as they care about people and 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 people in many cases are bad for animals i I don't know how to argue with that because it's so far from my own way of thinking um but i I, i'm you know logically those people may have a point okay i think looking at the clock here maybe we got time for one more fun one and you take a minute to plug your your other so i talked about the armchair economist which is one that came out a while ago which I think I was. I think my econ professor in undergrad handed me that, and said you're going to love this. And he was right. I did. And then your newer one is what's the, what's the exact title? I don't want to buy. Can you outsmart an economist? Yes. Uh, it wasn't my favorite title, but the editor insisted on it, so uh, they <laughs> and, know the market better. than And so I that do. has like a bunch of like brain teasers, puzzles. Is that kind of the sure? Do do you want one example? Yeah. Well, is that the one with the the students being greedy, or is that a different one? The econ. Oh, that's students? a different one. I can. I, I we can talk about whatever you want to talk well, about. Why don't we do the econ student, and then we'll we'll quickly do one from the from the book. But yeah, the, the, the so a lot of people there's apparently studies showing that ah economics majors are, are greedier than the average I, student. I am just absolutely astonished by this. Uh, there is a uh, uh, should I say his name? Um, uh, there's an economist mm-hmm. who uh, uh, has done a study that there's an organization called Affordable Tuition Now, which lobbies for subsidies to college students, that, that uh, for college students to get subsidized tuition subsidized by the government. And they do two things. They lobby for um, uh, subsidies uh, uh, for tuition and they solicit donations from college students. There's a uh, uh, 
And this economist, I'll say his name, Joram Bauman, um, has done a study where he finds that econ students are the least likely to donate to this organization. And his conclusion is that econ students are unusually greedy because they're letting the history majors and the physics majors bear the cost of supporting this organization, which is doing good for all of them. Um, the, uh, uh, they're free riding and free riding is a symptom of greed. He had a New York Times article about this and he got a paper in an academic journal about this. And when I read them, I thought, I must be misreading this. He can't possibly mean this. Uh, but, uh, it turned out he did. And I got in a big argument with him on my blog where he kept repeating, yes, that's exactly what I mean to say. Um, my theory is that what this shows two things. First of all, it shows that economic students are less greedy because unlike the history and physics majors, they're a little squeamish about forcing other people to subsidize their educations. Uh, uh, they are, in fact, there are two related reasons I would expect economic students to be less likely to donate to this organization. One, because economic students have been trained to think about social good. They've been trained to think about models in which we treat everybody's interests as equally legitimate. They have been trained to think about social welfare functions where everybody's treated equally. And you are supposed to care about people who are not just like you. And you are supposed to care about the people the money is coming from. Secondly, economic students are not prone to the kind of magical thinking that leads the history and physics majors to forget that the money has to come from somewhere. Okay, Some of them, I think, just forget that somebody's footing the bill for this, and others realize somebody's footing the bill and don't care. And in both cases, I would expect the economic students to opt out of that kind of thinking, and I'm very glad to see that they do. You know, at the end of every semester, I talk to a lot of those history and physics and engineering majors, and I hear them agonizing. They're graduating. The end of the spring semester, they're graduating. It's graduation season. And they are agonizing about whether they should pursue a life of trying to improve the world or whether they should uh, pursue a life of material success, trying to pursue material success. I always tell our economics students they are blessed that they don't have that problem because they know, our economic students know, if we've done our job well, they know that by and large, with some exceptions to be sure, but by and large, the only way you know you're doing something good for the world is that somebody is willing to pay you to do it. Okay, you cannot just go out and do good things without without some kind of of um, financial incentive because you don't know what things people most need. You don't know what's good for the world. The fact that you're getting rich, probably not always. Okay, you could be a hitman, but by and large, if you're getting rich, that means you're doing good for the world. That's the best way to tell you're doing good for the world. So, as an economics major. One blessing of being an economics major is that you don't have that conflict. Trying to do good for the world without being guided for prices is as insane as trying to allocate vaccines without being guided by prices. Uh, uh, and, and again, uh, ChatGPT doesn't know that. 
my best students do, even my middling students do, even my weakest students, I think, have at least gotten some inkling of it. I believe we're, we're all doing a good thing. We're teaching this stuff. You're bringing it to the world, and thank you for doing that. We uh, Thank you. And um, Mises.org, folks, I had an article years ago, one of my favorites, that the title was Superman Needs an Agent. And I just went through and said, suppose we really had Superman. Look at all the stuff he could possibly – and I went through like all his powers as shown in the movies and such. And what should he do with his normal day? You know, because in one of the movies, he's like going around. He's like getting kittens out of trees and giving them to the kid. I was like, are you kidding me? Superman's getting a kitten out of a tree? That's the best use of his 10 minutes right there? And so I was going through like he could bring salad. And it turned out I thought he should spend a lot of time just doing live shows like with, you know, audiences of – you know, hundred thousand people, and going around letting people like you know shoot him in the in the eyeball with a gun or whatever. Just in that, in terms of just giving, and then he could donate the money. That's the thing people would think if he yeah. wants to, he can donate the money, and so he's effectively cutting deals with other humans, saying if I go do such and such, will you do these things for humanity? Is is like one way of thinking about it, and it's just a way to coordinate all those deals. Absolutely. Do, do you have time for? Fantastic. How about yeah? Can you maybe can you think of like a, a fun puzzle from your? Okay, a more everyday one. Yeah. Um, at, at the end of semester, at the end of every semester, my students fill out these evaluation forms where they say what they thought of me. Mm-hmm. Every American professor, and probably in many other countries too, uh, uh, faces this at the end of each semester. The best way to do well on those evaluation forms, we see this in the data is to be physically beautiful. The physically beautiful teachers consistently get much higher uh, ratings than the less beautiful ones. Why is that? Now, when I ask that question in the faculty lounge, the answer I get from all the history and physics professors is, well, obviously the students are shallow. Um, and that might be true, but it seems to me that the more obvious answer is that the beautiful teachers are getting the better evaluations because the beautiful be- Beautiful teachers are better teachers, and there are two reasons to expect that. The minor reason is that the teacher who takes the trouble to comb his or her hair is probably the same teacher who takes the trouble to prepare his or her lecture. And so, uh, by and large, people who take care of their physical appearance are also taking care to do a good job. I think that's the minor reason. The major reason, which really illustrates some economics is that beautiful people have a lot of opportunities that the rest of us don't have. They, not just movie stars and models, but in retail, uh, every retail store wants a beautiful person at the cash register. Mm-hmm. Beautiful real estate agents do better. Uh, in many, many aspects of business, uh, uh, it pays to be beautiful. And that means that every beautiful teacher has given up a lot of job opportunities to become a teacher that other teachers never had as many of those opportunities. Somebody who gives up a whole lot of other opportunities to become a teacher, on average, is going to be somebody who loves teaching. And somebody who loves teaching is, on average, going to be good at it. Uh, those things are on average. There are exceptions. But on average, if you gave up a 100 great job offers to become a teacher, I expect you to be a better teacher than somebody who became a teacher because they had no other options. And the ugly people have no other options, uh, or at least have many fewer other options. So I expect them to be worse teachers. I always tell my students, you show me a lighthouse keeper with movie star good looks, I will show you the world's best lighthouse keeper. If he gave up a career in the movies to keep a lighthouse, he's probably really, really passionate about lighthouses. 
And so, you know, it's, it's a fun little puzzle, but it illustrates something really important. If you want to understand the patterns that you see in the data, you always have to stop and ask what incentives and constraints were people facing when they made their decisions? What incentives were people facing when they made that decision to go into the classroom? And when you think like that, you learn to see the whole world in a new way, a new way, a productive way, and a way that is fun to think about. But in addition to being fun to think about, and I think we've seen some examples over the last hour, it also makes you better able to be a judge of the policies that you want your government to be following, uh, the policies that you want to follow in your own life. And um, uh, 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 again, uh, ChatGPT isn't doing that for us yet, but I hope our students are, and uh, I, I hope they will continue to be, and I trust they will. Well, that's a good note to end on. And folks, don't worry. I thought of several corny, obvious jokes I could make about being a beautiful professor, and I will spare you. My <laughs> guest this week has been Steve Landsberg from the University of Rochester. Steve, thanks so much for your time. I think this was great, Bob. Thank you so much. I, you know, I, I think I've said this to you before. I've been on a lot of podcasts, and many of them are just painful to get through because the hosts are so clueless. And it is <laughs> such a pleasure to be on yours. It is such a pleasure to be on yours. Well, I think there's a pattern that the most beautiful hosts tend also to be the most interesting. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.